The following interview was originally posted on November 17th, 2012. For show notes and links for reference, you can go to esn.fm slash artist edition slash two. If you'd like to get these uncut artist edition interviews as well as the main Giant Size show and everything associated with it, you can subscribe to the Giant Size channel feed. A link to that will be in those show notes for this episode. Enjoy. Now up next is our featured interview with Kelly Sue DeConnick, one of my favorite writers in comics and one of the biggest stars on the rise. Um, I did an insane amount of preparation for this. Um, I, I wanted to make sure that we welcomed her as a guest in the best way possible. And I know she's done a bunch of different podcast interviews, and I hope that those of you who may have heard her on other ones uh, find some new stuff and interesting stuff to enjoy in this one. Um, and uh, we had some Skype lag issues that uh, that in, that uh, that resulted in a little bit of over-talking that was entirely unintentional. Um, but this is one of my favorite interviews that I've done. I've said it. There, I've said it. I've said it. And it's true. Um, if you are not already reading Captain Marvel... The first six-issue run has just ended. There should be a, a trade paperback announced pretty soon. I think it might have just been solicited, so you can get that. You can jump right on. Her run on Ghost with Dark Horse is uh, just a couple issues in. You can still probably find it at your local shop. There will be links in the show notes. So here is Kelly Sue DeConnick. My guest this week on Giant Size is the wondrous writer behind Captain Marvel for Marvel Ghost for Dark Horse, just out today, Avengers Assemble issue nine, her first issue on that book, and many other comics, many other things that we'll get into on the show today. Um, she's she was known on the dearly departed Warren Ellis forum as a cowgirl slash smut peddler, and she is a creative mind like few others out there. And I'm thrilled beyond belief to welcome Kelly Sue DeConnick to Giant Size. How's it going? Good, good. Thank you so much. Um, so I, I figured we might jump uh, jump right into talking about Captain Marvel, uh, which I gather you've done quite a bit of just as it was announced and when it was coming out. But now you're six months in, six issues in, you've got a full arc out. And uh, I'm, I'm curious as to how how things are, are feeling for you, if if initial feelings of, uh, of nervousness or, or, uh, or anxiety uh, are, are in any way alleviated by the fact that that it's this far in and it's been as big of a success as it's been yeah no <laughs> <laughs> still uh, absolutely terrified uh yeah yeah utterly and completely and uh uh you know we had a we had a, a better than expected launch whatever that means um but uh you know our numbers our numbers have have settled back down uh to i think where where we were expected to be um and uh, I don't, it, it's a sort of weird thing because I, I, I don't know what the numbers, like, I don't know, I don't know at what point we're in trouble, you know? Um, and I also don't think it's probably a really good idea for me to be like weighing yourself every 10 minutes, you know, like just let it go. Um but uh, well, what's what's it been like interacting with fans on Twitter at any conventions you might have gone to oh, as that, now that the book is out there? The fans are extraordinary. Um, uh, I am so lucky to have been a part of of this phenomenal characters. Uh, uh, it's I mean, you know, I don't want to I don't want to make it sound like I've 
like I've reinvented her because I haven't. I mean, Brian, most of the people who are following the book now followed the book with Brian Reed, you know, um, that, that they are very devoted Carol Danvers fans. Um, and it's great. It's wonderful. I am privileged to be writing for them. So you initially pitched a Miss Marvel book. There was a, a protracted amount of time that it took for that to to finally result in um, in Stephen Wacker uh, calling you and telling you that that uh, that in fact you weren't going to be writing that book. That's right. And as I as I've heard you act out, uh, <laughs> so so he strung you along. And then all of a sudden you were, you were doing the book that you thought you were going to be doing, but with a little bit of a twist, she got a bit of a promotion. Yes. Now the storyline that took us through the first six issues about the Mercury 13, these female world war two pilots who didn't get their due then. And even, even until recently, um, you, you sourced a lot of your research on a, on a book. Uh, what was the title of this book again? Uh, well, uh, so we, we, we dealt with two groups of women who were um, two groups of female flyers who were historically mistreated. The the um, the wasps of World War Two um, and the uh, the Mercury Thirteen program, which was never actually an official program and was not called the Mercury Thirteen program until much later. But um, uh, the book that is my favorite is a Martha Ackman book, um, and it's called. Uh, it's called Mercury 13. I'm trying to remember what the what the subtitle is. Um, the True Story of 13 Women and the Dream of Space Flight. Hey, there you go. There you go. That's what prep's for. Yeah. Um, it is extraordinarily well written. It's, a, um, it's 10 bucks on Amazon. This, yeah, this thing so, isn't going to break the bank. So worth it. The, uh, the, the, the opening paragraph of like the second chapter, she's talking about this woman, uh, Jerry Cobb, who was very much an influence on my first arc. And um, Jerry Cobb is from uh, Oklahoma and just the, the writing in this book for, for a nonfiction book, the, the prose is just extraordinary. And she, she's talking about, uh, she says, uh, like, of course uh, she became a pilot because everything in this part of the world wants to take flight. And she starts, she describes like candy wrappers flying up in the air and, and, and signs on the side of the street shaking in the wind. And, you know, it's really beautiful. Um, not the kind of thing you usually find uh, in, in a nonfiction book of that sort. There's another one called Promise the Moon that has a, a lot of really great stories, but it isn't, it, it isn't written anywhere. It, it, the prose is just not comparable. And uh, for our listeners' benefit, we're putting links to these different books and all the different kinds of things that we talk about in our show notes for this episode, which you'll be able to find at 5x5.tv slash giant size slash two for this, the second episode of the show. So you sourced from these two books. Was this initial six-issue arc, is this basically what your original opening arc pitch was for the Miss Marvel book, or was that something different that you're looking to use later on? No, it's, that's essentially uh, what it was. I mean, my original pitch was, if you can believe this, more complicated and longer. Um, I wanted to do a thing where, um, where where the timelines started crossing so you could see that the, the, like the integrity of the timelines was disintegrating, um, which is a great thing to write in a pitch and a 
really difficult thing to try to <laughs> it, it, make clear in the writing. Um, and uh, I also, it, what, it wasn't in the pitch, but there was, a, I was, I wanted to do a thing. I, I wanted to change her origin story um, so that, so I was going to have her and Helen there back in time to the point when the, the psyche magnetron machine blows up and, and, you know, the idea that this, that, that initial explosion, the scattering of the shrapnel from that went across time and space. And, and the, the initial explosion is what's caused all of this. Um, and, uh, and I wanted to have it so that the, the two of them were there and they interfere in the scene so that when Marvell would have picked up young Carol, instead he picks up Helen and it's, uh, it's our Carol who picks up young Carol when the explosion goes off so that Marvell's powers are transferred to Helen and our Captain Marvel's powers are transferred to her younger self. So essentially she, she would become the source of her own power, which I liked very much from a, um, from a symbolic standpoint. Um, but ultimately it was, it was too severe of a change to her origin. And, uh, and I think from editorial's point of view, uh, just a little weird, uh, which I get. Um, you know, I mean, anything involving the Cree is a little bit weird. Yeah. But I think, I think (laughs) it was, it was the, it was more than the Cree. It was the paradox of it that she would be her own mother, you know? So, meh, it's all right. Um, (laughs) Well, so I'm I'm happy. I'm I'm very happy with how it turned out. So this, this initial arc, uh, started out with art by Dexter Soy, which, uh, there was some criticism. I think that criticism was, uh, full of crap. Um, <laughs> I, I really loved the aesthetic of it. It reminded me of, um, you're, you're, you've been pals with Joe Casada for some time when he started at Marvel with the Marvel Knights line and they had, um, uh, Mark, Mark Texera on Black Panther there was this painterly quality to it. It reminded me so much of that. And I love that it was not only doing things that a lot of superhero books weren't doing in the writing, but aesthetically was doing things a bit differently too. And then part of the way through the arc, we got some lovely art from the magnificently talented Emma Rios, um, who did Dr. Strange season one with Greg Pak to thrilling effect. I'm, I'm still giddy that that thing even exists. So you got to play with a couple of really top-notch artists on this thing. How how did that um, that changeover from artist to artist uh, work? Were you dealing with, uh, I, I guess, uh, what, what what was the difference in communicating what you were hoping to see visually from one artist to the other? Do they have different styles and interpretation that you? Yeah, found? they do. They have they have really very different strengths, um, and I think. Uh, I mean, they are both absolutely extraordinary to my way of thinking. Um, and Dex is new, but next, Dex is learning really fast. Dex is going to be a superstar, you know? Uh, and his, his, uh, his work ethic is really phenomenal. Like he, he is, he works hard and fast and takes notes and, uh, he, he's really, 
that kid's got a future. Um, but, uh, uh, but he excels at these, like, he excels at these, these big open spaces, you know, and these big powerful moments. Um, and so that's what you want to write for him, you know? Um, and I think I probably was enjoying writing that so much that I, I, I think I probably spent too much time with the Banshees just because he was killing it, you know, cause it was just like, well, that's fantastic. Let's see more of that, you know? Um, uh, so I, I think I probably, I think I probably worked my pacing there a little bit, um, because I, I wanted to give him stuff that he was just going to knock out of the park, you know? I mean, it worked. Um, but I do think that now, uh, and, and this isn't, this is entirely on me, but this, this is probably my, um, the thing, my weakest point as a storyteller, as a comic storyteller, I think I'm working on the most is, um, my sense of pacing is not good. And, um, uh, and I think looking back on my first arc for what I could have done differently, um, I think I would have had time to make things clearer in the end if I had not spent so much time with the Banshees in the beginning. Well, but, I, I think I think you should stop beating up on yourself because I think it it worked fine. It's uh, going to it's it's going to live in trade form in terms of how people who who weren't geniuses like myself who were in from issue one and pick it up down the line. That's how they're going to see it. And the whole thing's going to work as one solid thing. It's like, it's like picking up the, the DVD or the Blu-ray set for a mini series instead of watching it week to week. It, oh. it, you're, you're fine. Well, you're, you're very kind, but, it, but I, I really don't think of it as, um, uh, as beating up on myself. I just think of it as sort of like assessing, you know, like, ah, well, there's a thing I could have done better. Um, uh, I'm proud of it. I'm very proud of the book. But, um, but yeah, you know, there's, there's room. It's okay. Yeah. You always, you always have to leave room for feeling like you've, you've learned something from experience because otherwise you don't learn anything if you're not looking for things that you can take away from it. Now, something that, uh, that I noticed, I think a lot of people uh, have made mention of is there's a very strong integration with the military in terms of the, um, the, the mindset of people who serve in the military and, uh, you're a child of a military family. There, there was, there is, the military was layered in, in my opinion, more, uh, more organically to who Carol has always been as a character than uh, many, maybe any of the incarnations of the character I've read. But then again, this very much for me is is the uh, first time I'm really following the character specifically. Uh, there's, there's so much of of the military mindset that this is like a it's like a jerry bruckheimer movie but with more progressivism um my dad is or was he's retired now my dad was a career air force so i grew up on air force bases there was very much the culture that i was raised in that is uh how i got into comics because uh comics are a, a big part of, of, uh, military culture. Um, or they were in the seventies when I was growing up. I, I don't, I can't speak to now, but, um, we occasionally, uh, send boxes of comics, um, to servicemen and women stationed overseas. And when we get online and search for things that they're looking for, we, we search to see how many are asking for comics and there's always groups of them. So 
um, I would imagine it's probably still still the case. Which it makes it makes a lot of sense, really, if you think about it. Yeah, I mean, there's there's you know looking for that escape or that um, that storytelling thing to to escape out to when you're not actively doing something and, and at the grindstone all the time, like a lot of uh, folks serving do. Um, something else that it, yeah, and and also uh, just the you know the emphasis on heroism. The emphasis on heroism and. Um, gender roles which a lot a lot of this first arc is about um is something that uh, that every lots of people have made mention of for very good reason and i'm i'm curious about how um how your perspective on how uh, female characters have been treated in comics helped inform why you wanted this to be the first story that you were telling from the captain marvel world you know what what really pissed you off since you were a kid in the 70s reading comics and uh, and and looked at who the role model characters of your gender were uh, in the material that you were reading? Um, you know, I mean, I guess I, I, I wasn't particularly pissed off by how women were treated in comics when I was growing up. I didn't really notice it, you know. Um, uh, in, in fact, I'm a child of the 70s. The, the feminist movement of the 70s was pretty strong. Um, my mom used to give me Wonder Woman comics because she thought it was a, it was a, you know, it was a feminist thing. Um, when I go back and read the comics that she gave me, it's sort of like, Hmm, well, maybe not so much, but, um, so, so you're pissed in retrospect, <laughs> but you know, but not, not terribly. I don't know. Um, like if you, if you go back and read, uh, the earliest, Ms. Marvel books, uh, the, I think 1977, the, the first Conway issue came out and then, um, uh, Claremont took over from him there. They are overtly feminist far more so than anything you could get away with today. Um, uh, and that kind of bums me out, uh, that, you know, I didn't set out to write a feminist book, um, and people like roll their eyes at me when I say that, but that, that really wasn't my intent. Um, my intent was, I, I like to, I like Greg Rucka and I have this in common. I, I wanted to write about things that got my blood up, you know? And, um, and it, it isn't that like somebody said to me on the, the Reddit, uh, AMA I did the other day that uh, like, well, you know, they, they came around to liking it, but they had a hard time with the kind of go girl stuff in the beginning. And I thought like, I don't, comics are so, especially superhero comics are so traditionally about injustices. And I, all I was doing was writing about injustices and like raising the flag for trying to set things right. And I don't understand why, like, I never got the, the, I never got the critique on, uh, on Osborne that like, well, you know, I, I came around to liking it, but all that stuff about crooked politicians, cause you know, hey, boy, you get sick of hearing about that. You, you know what I mean? Like, it was like. These same people that say the, you know, the, well, once I got over the go girl stuff, 
it could be uh, some untold story about women in the Holocaust, and they would still try to put that into it because people have been conditioned to expect that there's just some message being beaten over the heads because that's what they see on TV. That's what they see on cable news. That's what they see in the excuse for journalism that we have these days. Um, and I, I think that the the injustice of the story of these women just not being told is – you know, that's that's what it is. So great. Let's tell this story. What's wrong with telling the story yeah. that, that we're losing so many of these World War Two vets uh, soon? There won't really be any of them around um, and that people don't know the story of these women to the extent that they should is it's it's a really terrible thing that people don't know this. And when people have been conditioned to expect that, you know, that isn't part of the historical record, I guess I guess they just react with, well, but this isn't the status quo that I'm used to. Yeah, no, they, they, these women weren't in combat, so that part of it I made up. But um, but they were absolutely serving their country, and they absolutely died in service of their country. And when they died in service of their country, the military wouldn't even pick up the bill to send their bodies home. The girls themselves took up collections to send their bodies back to their families. That needs to be told. That kind of stuff, you know, we've got things that happen in the military these days, and I'm not anti-military at all. Don't get me wrong, but there are a lot of things that aren't right inside of that apparatus that people within the military will admit to. There's there's this um, documentary that came out from uh, Kirby Dick, who did this film is not yet rated, really smart guy about this uh, this epidemic of, of rape in the military that nobody's talking about. Yeah. Uh, there's that. There's there's the uh, there's that. You know, soldiers don't get proper medical care. They don't get proper PTSD treatment when they come out. There's there are all of these stories that don't get told. And and I I have a similar, um, I guess you would say, a little boiling pot of rage when people say, oh well, that that can't possibly be the way that it is because that's not the way that I've been conditioned to expect that it is. Yeah. Um, but no, it's that 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 is so much of the reason that I immediately jumped into this arc and and loved it for what it is and and why I I think that it's going to be as popular as it's been so far. It's going to be very popular in trade form too, where people want to catch up with it and then and then follow along with it. When I was at San Diego Comic Con this summer, there were people already cosplaying as Captain Marvel and it wasn't out yet. Yeah, yeah, that was we that we were able to run uh, fan art in the first issue was kind of mind boggling. Um, that that is all chopped up to the strength of uh, Jamie McKelvey's design, which is just extraordinary. So, other books that you're currently on, Ghost. I just uh, just read through uh, issue zero and issue one of this. I never followed the comic when it was originally out. Um, you've written this very much as a very solid jumping on point for people like me who never follow the character. Um, as I, as I seem to read it, it seems like it fits just fine with the original continuity, even though we move away from Arcadia, which was the fictional world of the character and into our real world. Am I, am I reading that right? Yeah. This is set in Chicago. Yes. And so, so it doesn't erase anything that came behind, behind it, uh, for the diehard ghost fans. And, um, this arc that, that you're on right now, it's going to be four issues. And then is it, is it planned to go beyond that? Is it kind of a, let's wait and see kind of a thing? Uh, well, let's see. Okay. So it's, I've been, the names are the same, but the, the character and her powers are the same, but the story is in fact, very, very different. Um, but, uh, 
Yeah, yes, it is a... There, there are signposts to the original continuity and characters. Yes, and such. yeah, there's lots of nods, lots of references uh, to the the original series. Um, um, but but this one is 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 a reimagining um, very much. <laughs> um, but uh, we, it is right now a a four issue miniseries, five if you count the zero issue, uh, that will set up should they choose to do it. Um, a, a, a reason for being and a format for the series to continue. Um, I don't know at this point if the series will continue. If it does, I don't know if I will be writing it, but I'm confident that I will have set up something that um, is engaging and makes sense. And uh, I think it's really cool. I'm very excited. I, I think it's super cool because again, I wasn't into the character and not just because, uh, because you were going to be on the show because I've started following your writing since you did Captain Marvel. I wanted to jump into it and I was like, Oh, well, I don't know if there's all this continuity. And then I read up on it and I said, Oh, well I can just jump into it. Perfect. Um, I, I think it sets up a really good, like I said, jumping on point for people that aren't familiar with the character and whether it goes on beyond issue zero and the four issue miniseries. Issue zero is a, a compilation of three stories that did serialized through, was it Dark Horse Presents? Do I have yeah. That right? Yeah. Um, it's, Man, that a challenge. Let me tell you, that was tough. Um, it, writing, I, I, and again, I'm, I'm not sure that I nailed this, uh, and I've read a couple of reviews that suggest that I didn't. Um, don't but, believe everything you see on the internet. Actually, don't believe 98% of what you <laughs> see on the internet, to be honest. What, but writing a an issue number one when there's already been a zero issue, so you don't want to you don't want to go over ground you've already gone over, but you you still need it to be. Do you understand what I mean? It's like it's like writing two number it's, ones. Well, it's kind of like people might not necessarily know that there's a number zero or right. the store sold out of it, and all they have is number one. And how? But you, you don't want to punish people who have supported you with the zero exactly. by making them read the same story again. Right. You don't want to retell that thing for the first third of a I don't know twenty four or thirty page book, whatever yeah. whatever length it is. My now, solution was to was to tell the story from the point of view of this other character for the zero issue. And then basically recap in the first three, two to three pages, I think it is um, of, it may, it may just be two pages. So I recapped what happened in the zero issue at the start of issue number one, but I may not have taken enough time with it. I I think it actually totally worked because for a moment I, I was, I was kind of questioning um, in the Zero issue, uh, Kelly Sue uses the, um, I guess you would say, disgraced journalist character who is on this kind of ghost hunters type show, yeah. um, who with a a uh, a a bro a bro uh, of a, of all bros um, teammate, unintentionally brings the character of Ghost into existence. And I was like, well, so we're going to follow this from his perspective. Okay, well, that's that's interesting. But again, I don't have any context for the character, so I don't know if that's just kind of how it's done. But then when you get into issue one, it jumps to Ghost's perspective. And uh, we we don't get her name yet in the first issue, so I'll just refer to her as Ghost. Mm -hmm. Um, And it goes from this semi-omniscient point of view. 
that that honestly there, there's an economy of the words that you're able to get out there so that you don't have to retell the whole issue zero but it still gets across what's happened what's going on so that if people never see the 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 zero issue they know what's happening and they can keep moving with it uh, boy i hope so i hope so that that i'm i'm glad that you felt that way um that, that was the intent so well good achieved Good job. And Phil Noto's art is phenomenal in this thing. Look, if you don't read it for the words, just buy it for the art. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's something in it for everybody. Ooh, yeah, something else. It's it's phenomenal. So this uh, this other book that you're actively on, Avengers Assemble, issue nine, came out today. Yes. Read it this afternoon. Now, this, this is an Avengers book that is set in the 616 uh, regular Marvel continuity. Yes. Um, but – is my is my uh, perspective correct that it's less connected to the broader what's going on in the rest of the Marvel universe and Avengers versus X Men and all that other stuff? Uh, well, I mean, at this point, sure, um, but it is uh, it, it is conceived to be very much part of the the six one six. I think what you're picking up on though is uh, that it's also meant to be the it's, it's meant to be the, the book that's the most accessible to the movie audience. So this is sort of like welcoming, welcoming people who may have seen the film and aren't yet comic readers into the fold. Um, but we didn't, it's, it's not doing it in a way that's not connected to the rest of the universe. Um, right. And I mean, even Iron Man has a couple of lines that are very directly referencing other things that have gone on from World War Hulk to all sorts of other stuff. So it's, it's not in any way divorcing itself from the 616 side of things. But it's just, I guess you would say it's not one of the seven different Avengers books that is part of every single crossover, at least at the moment. Um, right. So... So was there something in particular about this Avengers book in particular that uh, that interested you in terms of uh, of jumping onto it? Characters you got to play with or stuff you got to do with it? It's the only Avengers book I've ever been offered. So. <laughs> well, well, what's wrong with them? So Come on. Very interesting. Um, uh, yeah, you know, I think I, I'm I, I'm insecure about my ability to retain every detail of everything that's ever happened in the Marvel universe, which I know is not my job. Um, that's my editors are there to make sure that I don't mess anything up like that. But, um, but it still, uh, is, is a thing that I don't know, like some kind of imposter syndrome thing I've got where I'm like, Oh, I don't qualify. I don't, I can't, I can't cite chapter and verse of, all of the Avengers history. But, but this, this book lets you play more with the core characterization of who they are and not have to worry so much about, um, you know, is Tony Stark in space, this issue, this issue, or, you know, what are we looking at across the broader continuity? And it, it lets you really focus on just maybe it, whether it's a humorous or dramatic effect, who the Hulk is, who spider woman is that, that sort of a thing. Yeah. I was just focusing like with, with any book that I write, really, I was like trying to find things, uh, topics that were interesting to me, things that I could sort of turn over in my head and then, and then play with them I I with those personalities. Um, and I really wanted to match, uh, Joss Whedon's tone in the film because I enjoyed that so much. Um, so that was when, kind of when you have spider woman, uh, making, uh, making Hulk make her a sandwich. 
Um, that, uh, people aren't doing that in other Avengers books. They're not having that much fun with it. They're talking about we're going to rip the fabric of space time apart or something. And and there's there's still some of that fun to it. And I, I really liked that in particular. Thanks. Thank you very so, much. Talking about establishing voice and character, something that I've heard you talk about, I've read you talk about, is you have a theater background, a theater with a, with an R.E., um, yeah. stage work you you've worked as a as an actor you you have a, a degree from the university of texas in austin where i'm recording from right as we speak that's right where i also went to high school and junior high and i've heard you talk about names like carol churchill uh sanford meisner uh mm-hmm. names that are are near and dear and very much part of my uh drama learning and i i there's no way that uh that your your drama background hasn't influenced who you are as a writer, where it it feels like you're 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 getting to kind of play all the parts in the show, which yeah. uh, which is a, a tremendously uh, wonderful uh, kind of experience to have. At least you know the the way that I think of it in my head. You know how how has that influenced the way that you play those parts and the way that you inhabit those characters? Well, there's a couple things I think. One is theater is a collaborative art, and so are comics. Um, that's a big difference between like writing a novel is a very solitary affair, but, uh, I, I, uh, I, I understand I've never actually written a novel, but that is my understanding of the process. Um, whereas you make comics with a team, you know? Um, and these, I think right now our industry is, you know, we go through these phases where we focus on, um, the artists or the writers. Um, and I, I think actually that the next one will be a focus on the editors. Um, uh, I, this is, I don't want to take credit for this. This is, um, something my, my husband, um, was talking about, but, uh, he, he thinks with the way that the schedules have ramped up, that it's in, in the way that, uh, editorial offices are divided now that it's going to be become something more like, uh, the way television is run that there will be the editor who will act like a showrunner, and then there will be a staff of writers uh, who work on. Uh, here's here's the Avengers writing room. Here's the Fantastic Four writing room. Here's the exactly, Spider Man exactly. writing room. Yeah, and then then like then the editor will be the the grand vision for the book. Um, uh, and I think that that people down the line, maybe following editors rather than, uh, than writers or artists. Um, uh, certainly they'll, they'll follow writers and artists, but you know what I mean? Like this, the same way that we are in a writer driven phase right now. Yeah, dude, I'm totally, I'm a whacker kind of guy, you know? Exactly. Exactly. Um, we're, we're in a writer driven phase right now. And, um, and I think that that, uh, uh, you know, I like I, I read. Um, I shouldn't read reviews, but I read a few reviews. Um, and that's I, the that's the downfall of any theater actor. We all read the reviews. We tell ourselves we shouldn't read the reviews. It's a terrible idea, but then we read them anyway. Oh, it's a terrible idea. It's such a terrible idea. But um, particularly about this Avengers book, I was really, really nervous about it. Um, it's the most high high profile book I've ever worked on, and um, I want you to like me. You know. Um, and so, uh, I was scared. I just wanted to know, like, am am I hitting the right notes here? Um, and, uh, and, and the good news is the response has been 
overwhelmingly positive. I've seen um, a couple of negative things, but they really drowned out. And what I do, usually I am, um, usually I'm disciplined enough to only look at what is brought to me. Um, uh, I was having a terrible, terrible writing day today and it was just really blue. I got up at three o'clock this morning because I really needed to get a script in today and I did not get it in today. And it, and I'm utterly exhausted. And as soon as we get off the phone, I'm going to fall on my face. Um, so it was, it, I had kind of a crappy day. Um, and I think I went looking for stuff to bolster my ego, honestly. I mean, something to kind of, kind of get me like, you can do it champ, you know? Um, and, uh, and, and I found some great stuff. Um, uh, but I, it, it did bum me out to see, uh, that I don't think Caselli was getting his due. Um, and, uh, and that book is co-created with Caselli, you know? The, the look of it is so much of it. The, from the, the cover art, which yeah. when they did the announcement, the cover art went out and I was like, all right, well, I'm on board with, with the writer already. I've not been following this book, but with that writer and this look, Yeah. You know, here's my three, four bucks, however much it costs. Fine. Sounds good. Uh, yeah, the cover's not actually him, oddly enough. Oh, but, it's not? But I, I, yeah, but I get your point. I, I still follow your point, yes. But yeah, the, 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 art, the art is so much part of it. It's, it, it's, a, it's a joint effort. You know, the, the guy that runs the yeah. network, is a, he's a big fan not only of Dan Slott's writing on Amazing Spider-Man, but he also really loves Umberto Ramos's art, and he's there just as much for Dan as he is for Umberto. Yeah, um, it, the, the acting... The, the acting is just extraordinary. And there's stuff that, like, I've gotten congratulated a couple times on that mug, that um, Frankie Says Relax mug. That was not me. Caselli did that. That was, um, that was a surprise that you got the moment you saw the pages yourself. It was hilarious. Yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, you know, he is... Uh, He's really fantastic. Um, and, and going back to your, your larger point, I think one of the things about uh, coming from a theater background um, that really affects working in comics is, is, uh, is, is very much a, a, a collaborative approach. We, this, this is a team that creates this work. Um, and uh, uh, that, that, that is a big part of it. Um, then uh, just from, from an actor training perspective, um, you know, motivation and, and character voice is a big part of what I do. Um, I, I read my scripts out loud, um, as embarrassing as that may be. Um, so, and th- that is directly relevant to theater training too, I think. Well, I mean, that's the way that people read them in their head. They, they read them like dialogue. They hear the character voices in their head. If you're not reading it out loud, you're not, you're not putting it through its paces. You're not putting it through I guess you would say in, in the parlance of TV, a table read. Yeah. Um, if, it, if it, if it trips me up, then I need to fix it because it's going to trip somebody up in the reading of it. Well, you, you mentioned that, uh, that your husband, whoever he is, uh, sounds like a smart guy, you know, maybe he'll, he'll turn <laughs> yes. into something someday. He, He's he, men- right. <laughs> he mentioned how, uh, how people are going to really start following editors. I think, I think he's got a good point there. And I'm, I'm curious again on the, on the theater thread, um, who some of the, the playwrights are that, that you followed, are, are there any particular shows that really meant a lot to you that, that had a, a strong formative, uh, influence on you? Um, you know, there was a production I saw of Arcadia. Um, my God. Oh my God. Sorry. Sorry. 
no, no. It's show, a, a show, a show, very near and dear to my heart. That's that is, I, I think, my favorite play in the English language. So, wow. so go on, go on. I couldn't, I couldn't yeah. like you enough already. So just go on. <laughs> yeah, I have. I've never been part of a production of the show, but it was, um, it was one of the most amazing theatrical experiences I've ever had as an audience member. Um, and it was, it was the kind of thing where. I lived in New York. Um, a friend of mine and I were poor and, uh, you know, we would scrape together money, uh, to go to a show every couple weeks. And, uh, he, I worked during the day, so he would go stand in the TKTS line and I would find out after work what we were going to see. Um, and we went to go see Arcadia. I had, didn't know what it was. I had no, I went in completely cold and just loved everything about it. Um, it. And it was just one of those experiences was, was like, Oh, right. This is what story can do. You know, um, and for, for those listening who may not be familiar with the script, it, it takes place in two different time periods. Mm-hmm. There are people in the present that are looking back on uh, something that happened in the past um, that, uh, you know, in, in a, in a time when, when hair was a little bit longer and curlier and coats were longer and, and, uh, and there was a great deal more propriety in the world. And there's this, um, I guess I would characterize it best as this, this sense of, uh, tragic longing that, um, that, that becomes a, a big part of, of where it goes. Um, and it's, it, it, it's, it's a marvelous piece. So, so how, how did that, how did that, uh, seeing that performance affect you, what uh, did that, did that send you in, in a different direction creatively with what you wanted to be doing? You know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm terrible at analyzing my own work. This is a, a thing I've talked about before that like, I feel like I can look at my colleagues body of work and, and, and I, like I could help someone who was shopping. I could help a newbie in a comic book store and, and be like, Oh, you know, here, Brian Bendis writes a uh, kind of David Mamet-esque dialogue, and it's very funny and sharp. And he writes a lot about family, on, honestly, in, in all different contexts. He writes about family, and, um, uh, and he writes really um, interesting female leads, I think. He, he writes strong women. Um, and I, I mean strong, like not in a... Like their, their voices are very clear. Um, uh, I would say about Brian, uh, about uh, uh, Greg Rucka. Um, I would say that you know he's uh, there's a there's a fury behind everything that he writes. Um, uh, there is a sense of uh, indignation. I think in a lot of what he writes uh, that I really respond to again, very powerful female characters, um, strong female leads, um, action hero, strong action hero, female leads. Um, Matt uh, fraction is uh, uh, he, he writes. He it's, it's smart. He challenges the reader. He doesn't, he makes you work for it. Um, he's very funny structurally. He does a lot of very interesting things. Um, uh, uh, he's, uh, uh, what, what he did in defenders four with Dr. Strange is something that as a massive Dr. Strange fan, 
I thought, wow, somebody's actually thinking about how you can do stuff with him and not have him just be Batman with magic who shows up every once in a while to shoot something. Yeah, and he likes, like, Matt likes really the weird sexuality of Doctor Strange, you know? he Like, we were talking about him one day, and, um, uh, and I was, I think the way that Matt writes him, um, he reminds me of uh, James Spader, you know? There's a... There's yeah. a there's, like, there's this bit of Alan Shore from Boston Legal in in Matt's Doctor Strange that is is that that kind of sexual enigma kind of a thing. Yeah, like like it's it's a, it's a really attractive creepiness, you know. Um, and uh, uh, anyway, so so I can just I can describe. It's it's easier for to, you to look inside the work of of people that that you're friends with that you've worked with uh, people whose work you admire, but a little bit more difficult to self analyze on that front. I, I can completely yeah. understand and appreciate that. It's it's like trying to describe my personality. I'm like I don't yeah. know. As soon as I say something about myself, it's sudden, suddenly I can I think of all the reasons that that's not true or all of the circumstances under which that's not true. So I don't know. I'm, I'm very bad at at understanding uh, or, or recognizing patterns or influences in my own work. Well, something that, uh, that I guess would be related is I'm, I'm curious about how the, the research that you do, like reading these books, uh, different influences that you've had and just life experience, um, things that, things that you have been conscious of that you've worked into your, into, into your writing. And we, we talked about this uh, before the show, but Something that I found particularly compelling uh, because I've had I've had personal issues with, with alcoholism in both Captain Marvel and Ghost is you you deal with um, people who who are alcoholics who have who have uh, have dealt with it are dealing with it in one stage or another and it's realistic and lived in and not just something that's that's thrown at them um, and I, I'm I'm curious about how different life experiences have have been things that you've, you've said to yourself that you, whether it's something that you think, Oh, well, that's something I can definitely talk about with this character, or that character, or when you find yourself with an assignment where you have an opportunity to, uh, to deal with a character that has, um, ha- that, that has something, something that, that, that's touched you, whether it's being a military kid or, or whatever, you know, how that's, um, how that's worked into how you do your work. Um, I guess, you know, you're, you're always trying to write as honestly as you can. Um, but it's, it's this weird kind of honesty. It's, it's, um, emotional honesty, but not necessarily a fidelity to the facts. Um, uh, so like, um, I am an alcoholic and addict in recovery. I have 12 years, uh, sober and, um, writing, you know, I don't really talk about Carol's alcoholism and I don't have plans to honestly, because, um, because I feel like that has been so well explored in the Marvel universe with the character of Tony Stark, um, that I don't, I don't so much want to re retrace those steps and um, and I'm not sure that I have anything. I, I, I don't have anything new to bring to it, you know? Um, but when I think about her, 
as an alcoholic, I think about, you know, the way she has to sort of, she's a control freak and she's um, uncomfortable with human emotions, you know, and uh, just focus on the mission and not how, how I'm, I'm emotionally falling apart right now because this, that, and the other that's happening to people that I love or something. Yeah. And she's, uh, uh, she's, she's very quick to anger. Um, and, and, you know, I think that one of the things as, as alcoholics that we do is we can't be uncomfortable. We're completely, um, incapable of dealing with that idea. We ha- we have a hard time w- with the notion that, that, that this uncomfortable feeling will pass. And so, uh, rather than living with it, we medicate it. Um, and, and it doesn't have to be horrible things. Like, you know, alcoholics medicate good things too. You just can't feel stuff so strongly. Um, and so, uh, so Carol, I think, has that reticence to allow herself to feel um, um, because it's overwhelming and she likes to be in control of everything. Um, and I think that's why she's so happy in a cockpit. You know, she understands how all of that machinery works. There's no there's no magic there. There's no creep. Or, or as guardian, anything it's you, you flip this switch that happens. I understand that. That makes sense to me. There's no, there's no wiggle room, you know? Um, and I think that's where, where she's in her comfortable place. Um, and then a character like Bon Barnes in, um, in ghost, he, it, there's a, you know, Phil just did an incredible draw, job of drawing this. There's a, a scene in uh, the zero issue where um, he's, he's angry and he's humiliated and he's at home alone, drunk, and he's laying on the floor. And um, that, that moment uh, makes me so uncomfortable to look at because uh, I I remember that. I, I did. I do too, and that's that's one of the things about the zero issue that that grabbed me the most because I've I've been exactly there, exactly as self pitying and self hating. Yeah, and, and just lost, just utterly yeah. lost. Um, and and uh, you know, and there's there's too a lot of shame in that character, um, and you know, eventually he's going to have to get to a place where he accepts who he was and the mistakes he made and, um, and quits punishing himself for them. Um, I, I, I don't, I don't know if he'll get there or how he'll get there, but I think that that's, that's ahead of him somewhere. Yeah, but he's, he's, he's on a journey of that sort. And I, I, I wanted to thank you for, uh, for touching it so directly and, and being as, as honest, um, about it as, as you have been. I, I wanted to, you know, it's it's a it's a touchy subject. It's uh it's something that people see as a weakness and something that uh, that shouldn't be talked about. You know, oh well, there's you know Uncle So and So, or you know, there's something that we don't you know talk about. But it's um it's something that I'm 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 glad that you're addressing the way that you are in your work as um as as the situation or as the characters call for it. Um, it's it's something that 
I found uh, uniquely interesting in, in looking at uh, at your work and in the prep that I did for today. Um, so th- thank you very sincerely. Yeah, thank you. Um, so let, let's dig back uh, a, a little bit. I know I don't have you for too much longer, um, but I wanted to briefly touch on your work in adapting manga. And I didn't, I didn't say translating. I said adapting because very good, is, very good. It's uh, translating something from another language is one step of the process of adaptation. And I've heard you talk about the simplicity of the Japanese language. I don't speak Japanese. I'm not. Um, I'm sure that there are otaku listening to this that are going to be like, oh, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Uh, I should be doing this interview because I know so much more about (laughs) manga. Um, But something that I've experienced in my journeys through Japanese cinema, through the movies of Kurosawa, but more importantly, Ozu. Are you familiar with Ozu that much? Uh Uh-uh. You would dig Ozu. Uh, Ozu's considered the, quote-unquote, the most Japanese of directors. Um, he was known for barely moving the camera and, and using fixed camera angles and telling domestic drama stories about the older father and the daughter who really needs to go and get married so that she can have a life and not just live at home with her dad until he dies. Um, and kind of the simple dramas of life. Uh, wonderful director. I'd highly urge you to check it out on, I, I think, uh, I think it's on Hulu. Uh, okay. A bunch of his stuff um, made a really wonderful movie called Tokyo Story, which is one of the best movies ever. Wow. But the, the the simplicity of of the language, the simplicity of the culture, um, you you refer to it as being part of an island culture, an isolated culture, and I'm I'm interested to hear how how you found yourself growing through the thousands and thousands of pages of this stuff that you worked on, um, and how and how that shaped the way that you do your work now? Um, you know, it's, again, it's one of those things that's very hard for me to see. Um, things have been pointed out to me. Uh, I, I spoke at Bendis's, uh, college course that he teaches the other day. And, uh, one of the, his students pointed out that I use, um, I put ellipses by themselves in balloons and that that is a very manga tradition. You don't see that very often in uh, in American comics, which I had never noticed. Um, and uh, so, I mean, there, so there's there's you know actual techniques that I've picked up, I guess. Um, another thing is uh, because because their language is so spare, um, the. Uh, the, the balloons are small um, and they're oriented vertically rather than horizontally like the English language. And um, so my goal when I'm doing an adaptation is I want to, I, I'm, I'm guessing, I, I'm, I'm intuiting what I think is the tone that the uh, original author is going for. And I want to be as faithful to that as humanly possible. I also do not want to cover art. Uh, so I don't want to move or, um, or change the balloon shape. So there's this, this weird thing that you have to be aware of uh, that you don't really think about as a writer in, in any other medium, I don't think. And that is, um, you need to use the smallest words possible and as few of them as possible. Um, so there's a, there's a discipline to it, uh, that after doing over 11,000 pages of manga adaptation, 
um, I, I think has kind of, well, I was, <laughs> again, this is one of those things that I, I, I was about to say was true and then realized, eh, you know, I, lately I've been shaking it off lately. I've like, and for instance, in ghost, there's a couple times where I, I, I looked at, I didn't get to do a, um, a final pass on, uh, on the balloons before ghosts, I think it was one went to press. And, uh, and when I saw it, I was like, Oh man, those, that's too wordy. That needed to be cut down. Um, uh, but in, in general, it, at least I used to have a discipline that, that came from years of doing that, of, of, you know, choosing the, the smallest words possible, the fewest words possible to get across um, the, the heart of what they were trying to say in the tone that they were trying to say it. So you, uh, you went from that into, uh, th- there's this really uh, wonderful uh, short black widow story in, uh, I think it was enter the heroic age was the title of it. And something that, that stood out to me most about this was that uh, you made use of what I consider one of the creepiest ballets of all time that I try to explain to my friends. And I'm like, no, 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 there is seriously a ballet that people do all the time. They consider it one of the great ones of the form that is about this creepy old dude who makes a life-size attractive young girl doll. And, uh, why does, why does he make this attractive young girl doll again? Um, and I, I, I really, I loved that little bit in particular. And I, I like a lot of the accents that are, that are seen in, in some of your early, or some of your early work for Marvel, the, the Sif one shot, the, the Osborne miniseries. Um, so how, how did you find your way from manga into, into doing stuff for Marvel and doing stuff for other folks, doing this, uh, this castle, uh, graphic novel and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, the first big gig I did after manga was, uh, 30 days of night, even in Stella, um, which I did with, uh, uh, Steve Niles. And, um, I knew Steve, I think from the Warren Ellis posting board. Um, it was certainly from some Delphi forum. Um, and, uh, I don't know. It was just this a very generous offer he made to me. It was like, you know, Hey, you want to co-write this thing with me? I was like, yes, I, I do. And, um, and so that I did that. Uh, basically I, I, I got to write that. He let me do pretty much whatever I wanted. He approved my outline and then, um, and then I kind of took it from there, which was, uh, super cool. Um, and also, you know, utterly terrifying, but, um, then, uh, my son was born and I, I, my productivity dropped tremendously in the, in his first two years. And then, um, I kind of started crawling my way out of that and did some anthology pieces. And then, uh, Marvel was doing this, um, Year of the Woman Initiative, I think it was, in uh, 2010, 9, 10, something like that. Yeah, I want to say it was called something like Women of Marvel, which sounds like a calendar and not yeah. <laughs> not a collection of stories. But but the, the idea was to highlight some of the great female characters in the Marvel Universe. Yeah, and they wanted to do it with as many female creators as they could. And um, so uh, Matt said to... Uh, you know, Alejandro, um, so my, for anybody who doesn't know this, I'm married to Matt Fraction. Um, and I'm told he writes comic books too. 
He does. He does. Um, uh, you know, when he has time. Yeah, uh, when he's when he's not busy being a, a father of two and, and a loving husband. Yeah. Um, and so uh, Alejandro Arbona, who was his editor at the time on, I, I think it was Iron Man, um, mentioned to him that they were looking for uh, women writers. And, uh, and he was like, oh, you should talk to Cal. And, um, and I think... Alejandro didn't, didn't know that I wrote or that I wrote comics. I don't know. And, um, so what we decided to do because we were concerned about, um, nepotism issues, uh, was, um, his boss was, uh, Ralph. Oh my gosh. Ralph Macchio. Ralph Macchio. Yeah. So, um, uh, I sent Alejandro a copy of uh, 30 Days a Night, Even and Stella. He gave it to Ralph to read without telling him um, who I was. Uh, and uh, then Ralph read that, said I could pitch. I pitched. Ralph approved the pitch. And then at that point, we told him, hey, I'm married to Fraction, so that he would have an opportunity if that was going to be problematic to replace me quickly um, uh, before we got too far into it, we didn't want to leave anybody in a bad spot. And he seemed to be just amused by it. Didn't have any problem with it at all. And, um, and then from there it went just the same way that working in manga went work begets work. And, and, you know, pretty soon uh, uh, my plate was full and I was having anxiety attacks so there we go. And now you're just writing every book, in, you know, that that you can possibly scribble into. Now, the the uh, the quote unquote nepotism issue is something that drives me nuts when I see, uh, in the rare instances that I, I go into the dark corners of the internet where people say stupid crap like that about, you know, folks like you, Hope Larson, who was on the last episode of the show, um, who have a background and worked in comics before they had anything to do necessarily with with the fella they happen to be with. And, um, you know, it's, it's kind of like uh, Frank Sinatra being with Rita Hayworth. Yeah. You know, they were both excellent at what they did. They both did what they did before they met each other and, and continued doing that afterward. Um, it's like, uh, yeah, like you get punished for having shared interests. Yeah. How dare you? How dare you happen to have excellent choice in your excellent taste in your choice of mate? I met Matt on a comic book posting board, you know, um, he was my plus one to Joe Casada's 40th birthday party so many years ago, you know, I mean, it's, it's so really like, it's been him writing your coattails and people, people <laughs> don't know where to put that. Um, yeah, I mean, no, but, uh, yeah, it's just, it's, I don't know. People s- sometimes, People just want to. People want to explain things away in a way that makes them the most comfortable. Yeah. Um, and there's because, because they they won't go out there and actually write something themselves and struggle and make it happen. They would rather say, "Well, hey, this person that's successfully doing what I would like to be doing, but have no intention to you know put the work into doing it." Well, there must be something wrong with them. Yeah, and you know, and the thing is, like, um, like uh, I've had this conversation with with Brian Bendis, you know, and and it's like. Um, Every person in comics has gotten their break because of who they knew in some respect. Um, not 
I suppose people maybe who enter contests, that wouldn't be the case, but, um, you don't, you don't just start working for Marvel. You have to make comics before that, you know, um, like, you aren't suddenly taking over for Brian Bendis on Avengers just yeah. out of nowhere. And then, and when you're making comics with these people that you're coming up with, like they get work and they, you know, and they refer you and, and that, like, that's how it works for everybody. Like, um, you know, Brian is saying that, that, like, it's never, people are never like, well, you know, the only reason David Mack is working is because Brian introduced him to, you know, and I made a joke about how, well, you know, they don't know that you're, it's because they don't know you're sleeping with David Mack or whatever, but. Um, uh, well, hey, he's a handsome guy. He's, yeah. he's a strong dude. He works out. <laughs> that guy, I saw him at, at the Austin Con uh, like a year and a half ago, and he was, man, that guy, I, I thought he was his own bodyguard or something. Yeah, he, my daughter has a crush on him. It's very funny. Um <laughs> But she's two, so you know she has a, she has a crush on every nice fellow. <laughs> Look out! Um, but uh, but yeah, I don't know. There's a there's a grand tradition of um, of dismissing uh, women's work. There's a, there's a book about it. Uh, uh, how to suppress women's writing. Um, and again, which, we, we will put that in the show notes. There you go. <laughs> um, so, uh, just a couple more things. Uh, you talked about when you were when you were a kid. You you read these Wonder Woman comics. Um, I've also heard and read that you remember the Kiss Army, a proud member of the Kiss Army. Yes, you're yes. I into, the, oh, you're saying I had the belt buckle. Yes, you uh, you were big into Vampirella. You were yeah. still are big into Stephen King, and you mentioned the Warren Ellis Forum that, as as I said earlier, dearly departed. Warren Ellis Forum, where you met Mr. Fraction. Yes. Um, that- and, and, and Mr. McKelvey and Mr. Gillen and a uh, bazillion other people, including Warren Ellis, who I now talk to pretty much every day. You know. I've, I've watched this, uh, this documentary, um, Warren Ellis Capturing Ghosts, which you are featured in, Matt yes. is featured in, Karen Gillan is in, all sorts of, Patton Oswalt is in there, all sorts of wonderful people are in there. Um, this Warren Ellis Forum was really the hotbed of everybody who has kind of taken over comics these days. Um, there, there, there is an argument to be made there. Yeah, there is certainly a, um, there's certainly a, a class of us that kind of came up together. In fact, there's like two groups that came up together through it. Yeah. So, so your generation Ellis. <laughs> yeah. Um, now you've, uh, you've talked about how you really love planetary this, um, as, as you put it in the documentary, actually this Rosetta stone of, uh, popular culture, popular literature. Um, what in particular, grabbed you in in terms of Ellis's work what was the what was the book that that led you led you down that uh, that that path that has now uh resulted in you being a, a lifelong mega fan of his it, it was it was planetary it was absolutely planetary um uh you know i know people you know transmet is is wonderful um uh there there's none of his work that i I even like his old Damon Hellstrom stuff, which he is horrified by. Um, but, uh, but, but planetary was the thing that was just like, Oh, Oh, I get it. Well, you're a genius. Okay. Um, like, it, it plays with all these, uh, I guess you would say the connections, uh, of, of the entire collective unconscious. It, it kind of, it, it breaks my brain a little bit to read it in the good way. Yeah. Um, and I mean, it feels like mythology and, you know, we, we talk about, or 
about um, comic books, or this is a thing I like to talk about anyway, about this particular genre, the superhero comics. Um, you know, people like to dismiss them um, or make it like you're slumming it, you know, or like, well, this is the thing you have to do. If yeah, you wanna- you're, you're just into capes this week. Yeah, you know, or like that. This is how you you make your bones so that you can do good stuff, you know. And it's like, no, I, I genuinely love this. Um, I love it in the same way that I love opera. I love it in the same way that I love uh, Greek mythology and uh, you know Arto and and you know all of this like really lizard brain over the top stuff. Um, it, it's comic books superhero comic books are 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 of that mindset you know they're 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 of that dna um and he in planetary he created something that feels like um it feels like mythology it feels like you're you're discovering like the secret of the universe you know oh global frequency global frequency is extraordinary have you seen the the tv pilot for that i never have oh my god yeah, it's it's it is it is the book that I thought to myself this this is the one of his books that I could see getting on uh, network television as a as a TV series and it was extraordinarily well cast but the book's great too but it is yeah it w- we'll have links in the show notes to trade paperbacks of all this stuff everybody should just buy every single thing that we talk about on the show um, because it's all wonderful stuff so yeah so- absolutely absolutely i mean if you get nothing else absolutely pick up global frequency um planetary is a is is a huge thing to get into uh uh you know i think you should but um but if you just want to spend a little bit global frequency is the thing to do so to to close things out you know we've talked a lot about your earliest influences your your influences influences since then i'm curious about how and i've talked to this uh i talked to a number of guests on on uh on uh, another show that i've got about how they um introduce their kids to different media books tv shows movies um and you know the the delights and and pitfalls of that process of of you know how soon is is too soon to show them this or that um, are there particular things that you really loved growing up that you find yourself going, okay, exactly, you know, when am I going to introduce my daughter to this or my son to this? Um, and, you know, what what are you seeding their media education with, and uh, along with this guy named Matt, who I hear writes comic books? Yes. Um, well, let's see. Um, Matt tells a story about his dad taking him to go see star Wars and he sat on his dad's lap in the movie theater. And that this was, he remembers somehow having the notion watching this movie that he wanted to tell stories for the rest of his life. And so star Wars is a big deal to Matt. Um, and, uh, so we introduced Henry to star Wars way too young. Um, but, uh, but he absolutely loves it. Um, right now, he's actually in a monster phase. Uh, this evening, he was watching... Um, he's five years old. Um, and this evening, he was watching uh, A Creature from the Black Lagoon, which he loves. Oh, there's a funny story with him and, and Star Wars. He's he's very creature-driven. He likes, he likes the monsters, and he likes um, uh, all of the different animals in, uh, in Star Wars. And he has a video game. Um, where 
it's like a Lego thing. And, uh, there's a, the Rancor, you know, the Rancor. Um, I'm well aware of the or the Rancor. All right. So, uh, in the game, what you're supposed to do is, uh, you know, defeat the Rancor. And, um, but Henry is not, he's not driven to win the game. He doesn't really care. So, um, what he does is he, he goes into the room with the Rancor, uh, which he wants to treat like a pet. And he changes into a droid because he knows that the Rancor won't eat the droids. And then he just hangs out with him and feeds him Gamorrean guards. Um, <laughs> That's, that is one of, the, uh, one of the coolest ways around what a game is trying to make you do that I yes. think I've ever heard. Yeah, so um, that is kind of just one of his favorite things to do, uh, is just to hang out with his Rancor buddy and feed him big pigs. Um, uh, so uh, he doesn't read yet, um, but we read with him every night, and uh, they've just, he and Matt have gone through several of the Oz books, the not not the Marvel adaptations, though they're starting on those. Um, and uh, uh, we've read Tintin with him um, when he was a baby baby, too, too small to really know what was going on, I think. Uh, Matt read him the uh, fourth world stuff. Um, Tallulah, my version of that has been to... Uh, show Tallulah the uh, Linda Carter uh, Wonder Woman TV show, um, which shockingly, she's only two and a half, but she actually watched a full episode of that with me. And uh, she loves it. And she spins around and pretends that she's Wonder Woman, which she pronounces wah, 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 which is crazy cute. Um, (laughs) She's got the consonants down. Yes, she's also into Peppa Pig, uh, which she calls Peppa the Pig. And um, what else is she into? Uh, oh, you know, it's a, a bad case of stripes, something case of stripes. Um, and, uh, and, and a show called Bo on the Go, she likes a lot, uh, which... I think it was like a Canadian exercise show. Um, and she sings it. Oh, oh, Wizard of Oz. She is, um, she's, she's, also, she's crazy for Wizard of Oz. She is nuts for Wizard of Oz. Um, Flying no, monkeys didn't freak her out or anything. No, we even showed the kids, uh, uh, the whiz, which scared them. But uh, the whiz still terrifies me. Um, okay. First of all, I was shocked at how good that movie is. I, I remembered it as utterly terrifying. I went to go see it in the movie theater with my parents and thought like it was child abuse. It was like, what did you just do to me? Especially that guy with the puppets down in the, in the subway, like the, the music man thing. Yeah. Yeah. Terrifying. And the crows. Oh my God. Um, but, uh, uh, Tula and Henry loved it. And, and I was, uh, I was shocked at how good a movie it really is. Um, and also Matt was pointing out that you, you could not make that today. There's no way. Oh, no way in hell. Yeah. So anyway, it, it, that was really extraordinary. But she's uh, uh, she pr- 
pretends that she's Dorothy. Um, and in fact, we all dressed up like uh, um, Henry was the Cowardly Lion. She was Dorothy. I was uh, the uh, Tin Woods Woman. And Matt was um, uh, the Scarecrow for Halloween. That's that's awesome. I I, uh, I can imagine that Halloween in the uh, in the Deconic Fraction household uh, is is going to continue to be a, a creative, interesting, uh, fun holiday for you guys in years going forward. That's uh, that's what creative folks do. It is it is it is a big affair. Yes. <laughs> so looking ahead to 2013, you've got your your first creator owned book to be drawn by Emma Rios, the wonderful, insanely talented. I worship at the altar of Emma Rios. Um, pretty deadly. This yeah. uh, uh, the the limited bit that's out there, and I, I don't want you to. I don't want to to uh, to draw more than this out of you because it's early days yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's Sergio Leone inspired. The main character is uh, is a, a lady um, mercenary uh, or assassin, I guess. Gunslinger. We'll just gunslinger. Say. She she slings some guns. Yes. Uh, and she's got she's got uh, a scar, and it's it's going to be interesting. It'll be out in 2013. You've got to come back on the show, albeit for a few minutes, to talk about it when there's something to talk about. I'd got, I'd love to have Emma on at some point. I had Greg Pak on my other show, and I I'm 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 hitting all of the intersecting points of of the Emma Rios world. She is um, so amazing. She's really self conscious about her accent, which no, is eso, eso no no importa ning, ninguna cosa. Lo podemos hacer en español. Well, there you go. Um, yeah, yeah, she's uh, uh, she is, is really, really extraordinarily gifted. She's uh, she's also a true collaborator. Um, I mean, we, we are developing this story very much together. Uh, uh, this is this is co created in in just at the at the cellular level. Um, and one of the reasons that I have shied away from doing too much press too soon is because uh, the story has changed so much from our original discussion. And we started talking about this when we were working on Osborne together, you know? Um, And, uh, uh, and so it's the elements of it that I thought were really basic to it. We've realized recently were kind of the darlings we needed to, to let loose um, and that, uh, uh, the, the, this, this kind of stark landscape that we are trying to, um, re- recreate or have a nod to from, uh, from all of the old spaghetti Western stuff. And, and Leone, I love Leone is like the, the, the Leone is the most palatable of it. There's, there's also, there's some crazy stuff out there like these these all these westerns that they were making in italy at the time are just nuts a lot of them are nuts um uh but some of, any- the, some of that franco nero stuff the the django uh, movies uh, oh my god the, 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 yeah you know it's a guy who drags a coffin around with him because you what you do is you yeah. drag a coffin behind you i mean what better accessory could you hope for out on the frontier yeah, um, just really fantastic stuff. Anyway, so it's 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 changed a lot. Um, uh, even since when I was talking about it this summer in San Diego, it's changed. Um, but uh, uh, but we're now in production. There are uh, uh, y- y- there's art coming in, and it's it's phenomenal. And she's going to be colored by um, Jordi Belair, who I adore. Oh, killer! Um, and we have uh, 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 Dustin Harbin doing letters. 
Um, and uh, 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 Sigrid Ellis, um, who edits the, uh, she, she works on um, the uh, Chicks Dig series of books from Norwegian Press. Um, uh, she's working with us um, editorially. So, yeah. Fantastic. And how, uh, at what, uh, what part of 2013 can we expect this thing to hit? Um, we have to have three issues in the can before we can solicit. Okay. So I would expect it in the spring. All right, cool. So, and, and then at, when, uh, when I'm ready to talk about it, you won't be able to shut me up. I promise. Good. Very good. I expect you on my show before any others, uh, right. because I'm, I'm so aggressively pursuing this because I love Westerns and I love, uh, if, if, uh, if, if you responded the way that you did to, to Franco Nero movies, then uh, yeah, this is, this is exactly the show that I want you on first. All right. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Um, well, thanks so much for being on the show, and uh, and uh, for 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 the the reader's sake, my sake, for everybody's sake uh, who loves comics, please uh, continue to punch holes in the sky. Oh, as you as you so eloquently put it in the, the first issue of Captain Marvel, which will be available in a trade sometime uh, in the next few months, I would expect. Soon, as I believe it's been solicited. In fact, it's been solicited. Fantastic. Well, uh, if if there if you guys need a reason to come down to Austin. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm sure that Austin Books and Comics would love to have you come and do a signing for it. I grew up there. I haven't been back in years. My best friend uh, that I grew up with uh, still lives there uh, with her two children. I would very much Okay, we will, we, will, we will chat offline. We will make this thing happen. I will introduce you guys to all of the crazy, amazing barbecue that can be had here. Uh, this is the, it's the live music capital of the world, but it is the awesome pit barbecue capital of the world, too. All right. Salt Lake's still around? Salt Lake is still around. Salt Lake is still around. There's stuff inside the city limits that, in my mind, blows away Salt Lake. Ooh, okay. I am intrigued. Again, show notes and links for this episode can be found at esn.fm slash artistedition slash two. If you prefer to keep your subscriptions separate for separate feeds, you can do that, or you can subscribe to the Giant Size channel feed, which is also linked on that page, to get all of the Giant Size shows pre-show, post-show test patterns, as well as these uncut Artist Edition episodes all in one place, all in chronological order. Thanks for listening.